Uh, today's reading is Psalm 50, and that's 5-0, and it's on page 572 and 573 uh, in the Bibles. Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above, and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my consecrated ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God, fulfill your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honour me. But to the wicked, God says... What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me, and he prepares the way so that I may show him the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Remain standing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can come into your presence and worship you. And Father, we pray this morning as we look at your word that you would speak to us through it. Give us ears to hear and a willingness to put into action what you're saying to us. Father, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email telling me there'd be no holiday kids this morning. And earlier on in the week, I got the same email as Michael about Microsoft Translator. So apologies for that. And when on Wednesday, we found out that the football was going to be started at 11 o'clock, uh, Rose returned to me and said, well, there's only one thing for you. You'd better be brief. Um, unfortunately, I can't guarantee you're going to be back at home in time for the kickoff. But if you don't linger over coffee, you should make it for the second half. 
how good are you at anniversaries? I guess most of us find it relatively easy to remember our own birthday. Wedding anniversaries may be a bit more difficult. I'm not bad at my own, but my sons, I'm totally reliant on Rosemary to tell me when those are. But anniversaries are really a celebration or remembrance of two things. There's another year clocked up, although sometimes with birthdays you think these days, well, perhaps there's a few too many years clocked up, so I'd like to clock some off. But there's a sense of another year clocked up, and also a sense of looking back to remember the initial event and to remember what started it. I was able to surprise Rosemary a couple of weeks ago by reminding her that it was 40 years exactly for our first date. She hadn't spotted that. And when we did her sums, I found out I was out by two days. But I thought that was pretty good going. We did then talk about what that first date was like. But Psalm 50 is almost certainly part of a service that was used to remember the covenant that God made with the people of Israel through his servant Moses. And it's like that each year the people of Israel would come back together to remember that event and to commit themselves again and anew to following God and following his commandments. And so this psalm that we had read to us is probably part of that service and was probably used in that way. And we'll see as we look at the, the psalm, and you can find it on page 572, and I encourage you to open it, that it actually breaks down into three parts. And the three parts are the, the opening verses, which are a call to meet with God. And then as that happens, God speaks concerning sacrifice and then about keeping the law. For those of you who are anxious about 11 o'clock, it is communion this morning, so that's why I say we're unlikely to get there. We are going to spend more time on the first part than the last two parts. But stick with us as we look and see what this psalm has to say. So the first six verses are a call to meet with God. And it starts, and one of the things that we see coming out through this is a sense of a reminder. Because the psalm and these opening verses are set in a way as to remind the people of that first covenant. That first meeting and agreement between God and the people. See, the story was that people of Israel had been in Egypt and God sent Moses to bring them out of Egypt. And uh, Pharaoh wasn't very keen on letting them go, so there was all those exciting plagues. And then it ends with the firstborn being killed. And Pharaoh says, let them go. And so Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. And three months later, after trekking and carrying their stuff for three months, they come to the Sinai Desert. And they camp in the bottom of the hills. And as they camp there, on the first day that they camp there, God calls Moses 
and he speaks to him. And you can read this in Exodus 19. And God says, there is to go to the people and say to the people of Israel that if they obey God fully and keep his covenant, then out of all the nations of the earth, they will be his treasured possession. And so Moses hotfoots it back to the people. He tells them what God said. And the people say straight away, we'll do what God wants. We're up for that. So Moses hotfoots it back to talk to God, to tell him. And God says, right, for two days you're to consecrate the people. They've got to wash their clothes. So I hope you did that before you came to church this morning. Got to wash your clothes, their clothes. And in two days' time, they're to come out and meet with me and I will speak. And so two days later, clothes are washed. They all go out to the foothills. And we read in Exodus 19 that the, there was thunder, there was lightning, that Mount Sinai was covered in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. And out of that fire and that smoke, God calls Moses up to meet with him and gives him the Ten Commandments. So if you look at the detail of these opening verses, you see there's very similar images to that scene on Mount Sinai. We find in verse 2 that from Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. That sense of God coming out of that place. We find in verse 3 that a fire devours before him and around him a tempest is raging. This is God coming. This is God appearing in the same way as he appeared to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And the psalmist, when he encourages people to come and meet with God, is reminding them of that first meeting. And in the same way as on that first meeting, there was the fire, the ground trembled, the people trembled. There was this sense of awe and excitement that from that God spoke. And in the same way, in this psalm, after the first six verses, God speaks. And he speaks, firstly, as I said, about sacrifice and worship. And then he goes on to speak about keeping the law. But the psalm is set up to remind people that they're meeting with the God in the same way as those first people, the people of Israel led by Moses, met with God at Sinai. Second thing just to see in these opening verses is that it begins with three names for God. We find this in verse 1, and if we looked at the Hebrew, we would see that it said El, Elohim, and Yahweh. And they're translated in, in our Bible as the Mighty One, God, the Lord. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? The three different words for God. It's like, you know, the Eskimo has 32 words for snow. Three words for God. But they all mean something slightly different. 
The most common one is that one in the middle, Elohim. So if you ask a question like, does God exist or is there a God? In that general term, then you're talking about Elohim. That general term of God. But the first word, El, means something slightly different. It was used by lots of the nations, not just Israel, but the nations around to mean that almighty, super strong, most powerful God. If you like, the ultimate God. And we still sing things like almighty, invisible God, only wise. It's the L we refer to. But we sing, our God is a great big God. It's the L concept that we thought of God. That's powerful, mighty, superior God. But the other name, Yahweh, the third name, which is the Lord, as it's translated in our Bible, is slightly different. Because that's the name that God gave to his own people for them to call him. Remember Moses when he was looking after, before he'd been to Egypt, looking after the sheep, and he sees the bush on fire, and he goes to the bush to work out what's going on, and God speaks to him. And God says, I want you to go to Egypt and bring my people out of captivity. And Moses has a lot of doubts about that and, you know, isn't, doesn't sign up straight away in Exodus 3. But he, God wins him round, put it like that. And Moses says, well, who shall I say is sent me? What name has sent me? And God says to him, tell them I am. And in Moses 3 verse 15, God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent you to them. This wasn't a name that any other people used for God. It was the personal name that the people of Israel had, that God had given them. And so as you look at these three words, what we see is the psalmist is saying that God, who is the almighty God, the super powerful God, is also the personal God of the people of Israel. The God who is more mighty than any other is also the God who has called them, who knows them, who sees them as special, who sees them as his people. So I want to ask you this morning, is our view of God too narrow? You know, as you sort of look through a door to see what's going on in a room sometimes, you can just see a bit of it. And then you open the door and you see the whole thing. Well, sometimes is our view of God too narrow? Because as we look around the church, and I don't just mean St. John's, I mean the church, you know, internationally, nationally, we see sometimes that we tend to focus on one bit. We go on at length about God being distant and separate and almighty and distant from us. Or we go to another extreme and we see God about having a relationship with us and it's all very pally. And it's like a super friend who never lets you down. And both of them are right. 
but individually both of them are wrong because they only become right together because the psalmist saw that breadth of God that is a mighty God but is a personal God he wants relationship with his people he wants to know them he wants to meet with them and what I want to say to you is is that the view you have or do you tend to just focus in on one bit and just forget the other bits. It's not easy. It's, it's one of those things like a balance board, you know, that you wobble around on. It's far easier to go to one way or the other way than it is to stay in the middle. But the challenge for us, isn't it, is to have that view of the psalmist, a wide view of God, a broad view of God, to see him in all his fullness. The third thing we notice about this opening verses is that the three groups, if you like, that are called to meet with God. The first one we find in verse 1 is the whole earth. It summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. The whole earth would have been that concept. The second group that we find are summoned are the heavens and the earth. And we find this in verse 4, that he summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people, it says. It's like he's calling the heavens and earth to be witnesses of what is going on. And for the people who've heard this, it'll probably be in their minds a flashback to Deuteronomy 32, where Moses is old, And he teaches the people of Israel a song that God's given him to remind them about their covenant relationship with God. And he begins by calling the heavens and the earth as witnesses in that opening verse of Deuteronomy 32. And just as Moses used the heavens and earth as witnesses, so the Psalms is saying, heavens and earth come and be witnesses to God's judgment. And in verse 5, we find the third group at the centre of this, the people who are going to be judged are God's people. We find in verse 5, gather to me this this consecrated people who've made a covenant with me. See, there's a picture, isn't there? The whole world gathered, watching, heaven and earth as witness. And at the focus, if you like, in the dock, the people of God. And it seems a bit strange. Because why would the people of God be the ones being accused? Well, the reason, I think, is to do with the fact if you want to enjoy a close covenant relationship with God, it begins with being open and honest and opening yourself up to the scrutiny of God and the psalmist is saying to those of you who want to come and renew the covenant promises that were made by Moses and make them for yourself you have to begin by opening yourself up to the scrutiny of God to seeing the things that are wrong in you to recognising your own faults and failings and to owning up to them, and to owning them. 
This is where that covenant relationship begins. And that's why in our services we have a confession. In a few minutes' time, Michael will lead us as we come to communion in the confession. And I don't know how you view the confession. Do you see it's something you've got to get through before we get to the more exciting bits? Or do you see it's something that's a bit tedious, a bit repetitive? But what it is, is an opportunity to reset our relationship with God. To come before him and to recognise what things we've got wrong. To recognise our own failings, to receive God's forgiveness and to start that covenant relationship again with a clean sheet. And that's what was there for the people of Israel. As they came to recommit and renew those vows, it began with them having to recognise their own failings. And that's what we do when we meet and we have the confession together. So we've got this reflection, this reminder of God meeting with Moses. We've got these people summoned And it comes with us reflecting and being honest about ourselves in front of Almighty God. And out of that being summoned, God speaks, just as he did with Moses. And he speaks in the verses of the psalm, firstly, about sacrifice and worship. Now, it was quite likely that the people who were there to renew their commitment would have made sacrifices as part of that. And it's essential that they understand the true purpose of sacrifices because like many things we do, there's a danger if we do things regularly or frequently that we do it because it's a habit or it's something we do and we lose sight of why we do it. And the psalmist says it's essential to realise that it's not God who needs or demands our sacrifices. It's not that he's unhappy about our sacrifices. In verse 8, God's got no complaint against them. He's got no complaint against their sacrifices or their burnt offerings. It's not that they needed something to, to get them acceptable to God. There's no complaint against that. He goes on in verses 19 to say it doesn't need, God doesn't need their sacrifices in material terms. It's almost a, a bit comical, isn't it? You know, do you sacrifice these animals because you think God's hungry? God says, I've got all these animals. If I was hungry, I'd help myself. Every animal of the forest is my his. And the cattle on a thousand hills? The sheep you brought for sacrifice is nothing compared to those. And he says in verse 12, If I were hungry, would I not tell you? The world is mine. See, God goes on to say, Sacrifices should reflect our thanksgiving. We don't make them because God needs us to make sacrifices. We make sacrifices because we want to say thank you to God. And as we do that, in verse 15, we find God to be faithful.
So we don't make sacrifices, but we do come to church. And we come to church for that public and collective worship where we sing and we pray, listen to God's word, we take part in and share communion together. How do we view that? Is it something that we do because we ought to do it? Or because we're just in the habit of doing it? It's what you do on a Sunday? Or do we come because we want to give thanks and praise to God? Now, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we say on some occasions it's because we want to give thanks to praise, but on other occasions it's perhaps because it's what we do out of habit on Sunday and it's perhaps what we feel we ought to do. And there's a danger that we can slip into that same mistake that the people of Israel made. That they're not doing it because they want to give thanks to God, but we're doing it because in some way we sense we have to do it. We think there's a way being in church, singing praises, praying together, worshipping together, in some ways benefits God. It's something that we need to do to make us good Christians. Perhaps to keep God happy or to keep him on our side to earn his favour. But in the psalmist makes clear God doesn't need sacrifices. In the same way, he doesn't need our worship. It's not like he's bored on a Sunday morning, so he needs us to come along and entertain him by singing well. It's farcical. What God wants is us to meet with him with an attitude of thanksgiving and rejoicing for what he's done for us. And to worship him with that motive. Not for any other reason. You see, the beneficiary sacrifice, the people who benefited from sacrifice is the same as the people who benefited from worship. It isn't what God gets from it, but what it does to us. What it did to the people of Israel. You see, it reminded them and it reminds us of where we stand. And it gives us a true sense of perspective. As we come into the presence of God and we worship, it helps us to see ourselves not as the big thing, but to see God at the centre, God at the head, to see us as created, not in charge of things. To see our own inadequacies and to see the provision that God has made for us through Jesus Christ. And that's what worship does. It takes away those wrong views and gives us that true, correct perspective of where we stand with God. And as we stand in front of God, as we stand in his presence then what comes up in our hearts but thanksgiving and gratitude for what God has done for us and the blessings he has heaped upon us. Is that the sort of worship 
that we take part in? Or is it just a worship out of duty and obligation? The second thing he goes on to speak about is the keeping of God's law. And it begins in verse 16, and it says, To the wicked person, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or to take my covenant on your lips? It's addressed to those who knew the law of God, but didn't keep it. And it picks up in verses 18 to 20, three specific areas, three of the commandments around theft, around adultery, around lying. It also picks up more generally about what we say and how that reflects God positively or doesn't. And there's a clarity, isn't there, about those who show blatant disregard, the wicked have no right to recommit themselves to keeping the covenant. But also through these verses are woven some ways in which people perhaps appear to keep the law and God's law, but don't. So verse 16, that sense that um, you're wicked, you do what you want, but you still say the vows of the covenant. It's a bit like thinking, well, it doesn't really matter what I do so long as I go to church on Sunday. You can't cover not keeping God's law by just religious practices. In verse 18, we might not actually do the wrong things, but we associate with those who do. We applaud their exploits. We enjoy the stories and the tales they tell us of them. We follow them on social media. We turn a blind eye to what they're doing wrong and pretend it's okay. And God says that's not acceptable either. Or in verse 21, we see the the lack of immediate divine intervention as being God approving what we're doing. God hasn't struck me down and stopped me doing it, so it must be okay. And into that warped way of thinking, God said, you thought I was exactly like you, but now I'm accusing you. God's silence or God's delaying acting doesn't mean it's okay. So to the people of Israel, the psalmist was saying, as you come to renew your covenant commitment, how honestly are you keeping God's law? And perhaps that's something we need to ask ourselves at times. Because we can all put on a good outside, we can all wash our clothes to go to church on Sunday, we can all appear to be good people, and perhaps we do far more good things than we do bad things. But our relationship with God in the covenant begins with being scrupulously honest and open to his scrutiny, and being honest about the ways in perhaps that we deceive ourselves. And the message of this psalm is that those who want to enjoy that relationship with God that the covenant brings must start by being open and honest to themselves 
about where they stand before God. Psalmist finishes this psalm in verse 22 with the challenge to consider. Consider what I've just said, you who forget God. Because if you don't consider, destruction is inevitable. But to those who sacrifice thank offerings, those who come to worship with a true attitude of thanksgiving, recognising where they stand before God and are thankful for him, to them God will show salvation. That covenant made with Moses can be renewed. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this psalm. Father, we pray that we would be honest before you, that we'd be scrutinising ourselves and bringing ourselves to the inadequacies and failings to stand in your presence. And Father, we recognise there's nothing of ourselves that we bring but only what you've done for us. And for that we're thankful. Help us to worship you properly and correctly. Amen.